Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You might be able to fool people some of the time for a little bit, but long term, you have to be in it to improve the lives of everyone in your organization if you want to get that extra juice, that extra sauce. And it's got to be genuine. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome to our latest episode. Today, we dive deep into healthcare innovation with the CEO shaking things up, introducing Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. With over two decades of experience, he's here to reveal secrets on customer journey, CEO strategies, the power of ownership, and masterful negotiation tactics. Get ready for insights that could change your business game. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How's it going today? Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on here. I actually should refer to you as Dr. Bektari, so I apologize no, that's okay. uh, for not being more formal. Excited to have you on the show. I'd love to just start with, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and just a little bit about you in general? Well, thanks. Uh, obviously, I'm a physician and I practice clinical medicine and subsequently got into administrative medicine and then got into entrepreneur kind of ventures. And we eventually started our own companies. And uh, we've been working on that the last uh, decade or so, trying to innovate and and help people by introducing new technologies and new ways of doing things. So that's been really our mission. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So when you talk about healthcare, I kind of think like really stagnant, not a lot of change. And it's just, you know, it hasn't really probably progressed with a lot of other areas. What are some of the obstacle? I mean, why is that? Like, why do I have that perception? What prevents it from being more modernized? You know, it's like going on a date with four people and trying to, you know, it's just where do we go? What do we order? You got to get consensus. It's it's not a mono mono kind of transaction. It's not like you sitting in your office and ordering a widget on Amazon where you decide what widget you want, you click and it shows up. When you try to do a healthcare transaction, it's not patient to doctor necessarily. It's patient to doctor, to insurance company, to the hospital, to you know, other players that have to have a say in it or want to have a say in it or have a stake in it. So complicated transactions that involve multiple people by definition, have a certain amount of inertia, if that makes sense. If it was a straightforward transaction where you, you, know, you go buy a car, it's just you and the dealership and you strike up whatever you strike up and you you know, you know agree on what you agree and what have you, it, it's a little bit more complicated. And I think that's probably held up some of the progress, both in technology and just innovative ways of doing things. 
That makes a lot of sense. So I guess you could arguably say it's a complex transaction, right. which adds elements to it. You know what I was thinking? Does the privacy part of it also kind of stop the ability to do things because you have privacy issues and HIPAA laws and things like that? Hmm. Well, I mean, the HIPAA laws are only, let's say, the last 10 years. And prior okay. to that, it wasn't like it was the technology and innovation was booming. So I'm not sure we can totally blame it on HIPAA. Okay. Do you think privacy plays into it a little bit? Just privacy concerns? No? I don't think so. I, I think okay. it has more to do with there's a lot of different stakeholders that need to you know, have their concerns addressed. And it's a complex interaction. And it gets worse because the amount of regulations and things you have to do only increase annually. I, I've never sat in my office and you know, gotten an email from Medicare or Medicaid or someone else saying, oh, we've eliminated these 10,000 know, regulations and we've made it easier. It's always adding on, adding on, adding on, yeah. you know, and um, you can only imagine what would that, as someone like you, who's been involved in a lot of businesses, imagine if you had multiple stakeholders tying your hand every time you wanted to make a decision and it only got worse year over year. Well, it's funny you should bring that up because I have many clients are in the healthcare side of staffing and recruiting, and I'll get into some discussions with them about credentialing, for example, credentialing nurses or doctors, and it just blows me away. To your point, every year there's new requirements. It's not in addition or one, le- you know, trading off. It's another requirement, another test, another uh, certification, and another. And it's it's pretty mind-boggling. I mean, that it's a lot. Well, I think part of that is for better or worse. I mean, a lot of people say for better, the government involvement in the healthcare system has only increased in terms of just involvement. And so that alone adds a whole lot level of bureaucracy. I mean, as you add more and more government involvement, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, whether it's any of these programs, they're going to want to have their say. And, you know, what could go wrong with having more government involvement? I mean, you're going to have more regulation. Right. So you start out as a physician. Mm-hmm. You know, I envision you seeing patients. and I was, yeah. 10 hours a day sometimes, yeah. Did you always see it in your mind like, okay, I'm going to you know, become a doctor, but ultimately I'm an entrepreneur and that's where my life will go? Or how do you go through that transition? No, I never thought that. I, I, I finished my residency fellowship, joined a group, became a senior partner in the group, was you know, seeing you know, my 10, 20 patients a day. And, um, and then I just got some other opportunities to be on a committee and get involved in this. And it seemed like every time I did something, one door opened another. So I'd go on this committee and then somebody said, hey, have you, would you mind doing this? And and before I realized that I, you know, I was sort of doing administrative medicine, I was medical director of hospitals and hospital chains. And then I was medical director of uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield for the state of Nevada. And it just one door kind of opened another. And in the meantime, I was also teaching in medical schools as a clinical faculty. So I was teaching, doing practice, my clinical practice, as well as doing the administrative stuff. And that actually gave me a very unique perspective on the business side of everything, because I could see, wow, this is how the hospitals think. This is how the insurance companies think. Uh, this is what medical education is like. 
And then this is uh, what clinical practice is like. So the question was, given that background, was there something I could do to make an impact or change on a bigger level as opposed to just seeing one patient at a time? That's very cool. So you started out, I believe you started out with E7 Health that came first. And it sounds like that's more of like a geographical Las Vegas I'm still challenging, but probably a little bit easier just being in one area. Now you're doing also e-national testing, which is obviously on a national basis. Isn't that exponentially more challenging just because of regulation and thing? How, how do you even roll it out to that size? Right. You know, being able to be that, that national level. Well, I think e-national testing is an evolution of E7 testing on a national level. So it's a lot easier because we know the business, we know the industry, you know, we we kind of you know got our feet wet doing E7 health. And then we said, how can we expand it? Even E7 health is brick and mortar, but our goal is to expand that regionally and who knows beyond that too. So both have are on a certain track and a lot of it has to do with the technology. We write all our own technology. We rarely use third-party software or out of necessity. We figured out early on that there was nothing off the rack that we could just take off. There's no uh, tailored suit that we could just take and put on and fit perfectly for what we need to do because nobody else was doing what we were doing with preventative medicine, adult vaccinations, and employee health, student health. It was so we actually, I think, created the category because there were people doing what we were doing, but they were all doing it as sort of side things. And we made it our main thing. So we had to use, we had to get our own technology. So I often joke, we're a technology company masquerading as a healthcare company. Yeah, I love that. I Whenever I have guests on the show, and this happens frequently, they start out with a discipline that's not technology related. And then they built something that, for example, I had a gentleman on my show a few weeks back and he start, he was in the landscaping business and he built it to, I think it was $10 million and sold it. And he created this platform where he brings on a national level landscapers together with homeowners and he Mm. brings that relationship and he actually it's not just like a you know where he lists some profiles and then the homeowner gets to pick them he actually controls the whole relationship uh, to get the service and it's just but he's bringing that technology he considers himself a technologist more than you know and it's it's fascinating but is do you think is going to the national level even though you bring the experience of doing it I'll say more on a local level, do you have a whole nother layer of regulation in every state or is that more of a federal thing? Well, yes. So we, luckily, you know, we've contracted out with companies that navigate those relationships. So we don't have to do it uh, per se. So in terms of navigating regulations per every state, there are vendors or people who will handle that portion of it. So part of our success has been you know, doing what we do, which is, you know, taking care of the patients and as well as managing that experience and managing that quality. But if there are things that are outside of that, we try to identify strategic partners that can help us with that. Got it. I'll tell you where I was going with that. So I was trying to like figure out in my head, what's your guys' like moat, if you will? Like what's your... Barrier to entry. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. For us, the big, one of the most interesting moats is people cannot help themselves 
when they do what we do, they also want to do primary care and they want to do urgent care. And it's very difficult to do what we do and not get tempted to, if a patient comes in with a sore throat and, well, I've got the clinic set up, I've got a, you know, I've got a clinician, I've got, you know, well, why not see them? And we have not done that. We've we've stayed away from doing primary care, urgent care, and we just work on this preventative health stuff. You know, we were essentially like a COVID company before COVID hit. We were doing vaccines for adults and testing for viruses and for employee health, student health, travel medicine. So, and then lastly is our technology because we have a 10-year, I mean, 10-year head start. I suppose if Microsoft wanted to get in the game and throw $100 million or $50 million or whatever, I'm sure they could catch up, but they'd also have to learn the business. And so you'd have to, one, know the business and then have the, enough capital to catch up. So I think that that's a barrier to entry. What is the concern or in terms of seeing patients, like if you fall into that mode of, yeah, okay, well, it's got a sore throat. I'll just, you know, we have a clinic and I have someone. Is it lower profit margins? Is it higher labor? Is it getting just caught up in the whole process of having patients come in and out? No, no, no. I don't think it's any of that, actually. So let me let me just give you an analogy. Like if you go to a tire place to, you know, that's discount tires, whatever. Right. And then, you know, you go in there and they're they're all geared up for tires. You know, you got these tires all the wall. They got people coming in, tires, tires, tires. And then you walk in and say, Hey, um, you know, my engine's making a little rattling noise. And the guy, well, you know, I could I could take care of that. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> you're a tire guy. It's not what you do all day long. <laughs> you're like, maybe I'll take it somewhere. And you know, what we do is so complex. It's mind-boggling if you want to do it right. I mean, there's a reason we have 10,000 positive reviews on our website because wow. people get it that that's all we do. So a typical person we hire goes through three, four months of training before we can leave them alone. And that's if they're not doing primary care. So I mean, can you imagine? I mean, primary care is it's sort of like, you know, why isn't your orthopedic surgeon also, you know, doing your cardiology. I mean, he could theoretically, right? I mean, why not? I mean, he could do it. So it's all a matter of perception. If I think we have like a 4.9 out of five Google review. And if you look at all those reviews and well, we have a third party that sends out reviews for us, um, they show up on our website. All these 10,000 reviews look like they were written by the same person. And I only say that jokingly because <laughs> it, do, it, it does sound like, you know, fast, convenient, never seen this before. Amazing technology, fast, convenient, fast, convenient, friendly, friendly, fast, convenient. It's all literally, if you want to go to e7health.com and read customer reviews, it's in the center navigation tab. You'll see it's just unbelievable. And it just dawned on me what these people were saying when they when they were saying this stuff. They were saying like, wow, if you innovate and reduce friction and improve quality, people notice it. So it's um, it's pretty cool. So it only motivates us to invest more in technology and systems to improve the lives and, and reduce friction. Why is booking an appointment such a laborious process? Why do you have to show up in a doctor's clinic and they give you a clipboard? What's that clipboard all about? I mean, that's like dinosaur stuff. Why do you have to call your doctor to get your medical records? Why, why is there even a medical records department? Does Amazon have a records department that you need to call to find out what you bought a year ago? No way. Why not? You know, what did I buy a year ago? Oh, 
You'll have to call our records department. They'll pull that up for you. The archive department. Right, right, right. (laughs) So why can't medicine be like that? I love it. I love it. You know, uh, when you say that, it fires me up because it's so translatable to almost anyone running a business is, you know, remove that friction. When you remove that friction, people buy, they want to do business with you. So the more you can get that down, just the whole fast, convenient, easy to work with, easy access to things. I mean, those are just such common phrases and words that really any of us as business owners should be striving for. I think you're right. I think there is a missed opportunity. You know, you asked about a moat earlier. Yeah. When I try to mentor even CEOs and young upcoming business people, there's this really false perception that the way you build a moat in a business is great customer service. And nothing could be further from the truth. You have to have great customer service, of course. But if you think you're going to be the 10th CPA firm in you know one neighborhood, and you're going to destroy the other nine because you have great customer service? No. And then, and also, what's the mode on that? So the next guy provides, of course, I'm saying it's absolutely necessary, but that's not going to build the mode for you. you. It doesn't even start the scorecard, basically. <laughs> yeah, you have to get technology or you have to have something that differentiates you. And I see this common mistake all the time. You know, we're just going to be you know, five degrees better than the last CPA firm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because you have just a ton of wisdom in this space of building a business. What are some roadblocks that you see um, prevent companies from being able to accelerate their growth? That's a loaded question because then it has to do one with, I mean, did you pick the right business? Do you have the right culture? Is the leadership sort of, I don't want to say trained correctly? Do they have the skill sets? So it can be multifaceted and I'm willing to go in any of those directions, but it it is, you know, it starts with getting the right business. Did you pick the right business? Because if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. You know, you can, Steve Jobs could take it over and and it's not gonna, it's not gonna fly if it just doesn't make sense. So you can't help a business that just is not viable per se, or it's not viable long-term. But then, yeah, have you? Do you have the right products? Have you built the right culture? Do your to your leadership, the CEO and others have the acquired skill sets to manage the organization? So, well, let's tear that apart a little bit. Let's start with the CEO. What are some underrated skills that you see that kind of run around typical CEOs? Can you can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the the number one for me is I think people think being a CEO is a soft skill. Right. Especially if they're the founder of the company and you know they, they it was their idea. But I think people make the mistake of confabulating being a nice guy, people like me, I get along with people to being a good CEO. The analogy I like to give is if I put you in a cockpit of a 747 at 30,000 feet all alone, you're not going to land the plane because people like you. And you're a good guy, and you know people want to work with you. You're still going to need technical skills to land the plane. And I think one of the most common mistakes I see: well, I, you know, people like me. You know, I'm, it was my idea. I'm the one that thought of it. <laughs> so the one one mistake is you got to go get the skills. You wouldn't fly a plane without getting training. If you're going to be a CEO, or if you want to become a CEO. 
acquire the skills. They're really skills, skills like, you know, how to enroll people into your vision. How do you build culture? How do you hire? How do you fire? You know, when do you take, when do you take your foot off the gas? When, when do you hit the gas? You have to calibrate almost every interaction. You could say the same thing four different ways. And you have to understand which out of the four you need to pull out of your pocket that moment. And so people look to leaders and they assume you're going to have certain qualities. The second thing I like to really add is, you know, integrity. At the end of the day, nobody wants to work for someone who you know doesn't have integrity or isn't it just for themselves? If all they're thinking about is, oh, yeah, this is, I'm going to blow this up for myself. You might be able to fool people some of the time for a little bit, but long-term, you have to be in it to improve the lives of everyone in your organization if you want to get that extra juice, that extra sauce. And it's got to be genuine. Yeah, authentic. Let's talk about culture then. That was one of your, you rattled off a bunch of questions. Those are almost straight off my my uh, list. So okay. let's just kind of go through a couple of them. Culture, how do you build like this thriving, growing culture where people want to be part of the organization and they're, they're feeling like they're empowered? What are some tips for that? I, um, as a matter of fact, I, I talk about this in my season two of my podcast, which, yeah. which we have labeled Crash CEO School. But one of the things that we talk about is this differentiator in our organization where we call people owners or renters, right? So either you're, you're acting like you own the place or you're acting like you're renting the place. Now, there can be great renters, right? I've been a great renter where I rented an apartment and I took good care of it. And paid the bills and da da da. I was, or I rent a car. You know, last week when I was on a trip, I took great care of the car. I'm a great renter. Did I treat that car like I owned it? Um, maybe not. Did I park it way in the corner so nobody dings it? Did I, you know, if I'm renting an apartment or renting a house versus I own the house, when I walk in, uh, there's a plant maybe on the side that's maybe struggling a little bit. When I'm renting, I don't know if I notice that. When I own it. I noticed that. And so it's not a specific one, it's a mindset to get people to want to be an owner. And there's no manual. Did you get a manual the first time you bought a house on how to have be more attentive? Yeah, definitely not. Did you get a manual the first time you bought a car versus rent? It's instinctual. You know, even if you babysit other people's kids, you're going to do a great job, but you're taking care of your own kids. It's a different feel. Right. And it doesn't mean when you're renting, you do bad. So the question really is to really build culture, especially in your senior leadership, is you have to get that ownership mentality. Now, we could have a whole podcast on how to do that and the skills you need to kind of do that. But it's an ongoing process. But to put it in a nutshell, one, you have to sort of interview and look and then mentor those people And second of all, you have to also look out for them. It's got to be a two-way street. You can't just say, be an owner, give everything to this company, and, uh, you know, we'll give you a paycheck and good luck. No, you you have to, your job is to make their lives professionally better, financially better, sometimes personally better, you know, depending on the situation. And you have to look out for them, you have to mentor them, and you have to invest time and energy. So... I love this whole renter owner like 
concept. I mean, definitely ownership. You you hear that a lot, but never in the concept of renter. I love that. It just like mm-hmm. it is true. I mean, you are you here to stay for a short? You know, are you here until your lease is up, or are you? Are you part of the ownership and you're here, you know, you're thinking more longer term? Well, no, I, I'll even go further than that because yeah, someone can rent a house for 10, 15 years. It's true. It's not the length of time. They can plan on being a renter for 20 years. It's just, it's not theirs. And you know, just so many examples. Look, here's the funny thing about renters and owners, you know, and I tell this to a lot of CEOs, you may not know the definition. Okay. You, you may not know what the you know, call it even, but you know, when you see it, you've had employees, you're like, yeah, they would, they would give their left kidney for this place. So I need to take care of them. I think it was one of the Supreme court justices uh, case back. I think, I don't know, 50s, 60s, but maybe it was Blackwell, whatever. There was a case on pornography. And one of the justices says, he goes, I don't know the definition of pornography, but I know when I see it, (laughs) it's like many things in life. Maybe we have a hard time putting a definition on it, but we know when you see it. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. I think it was one of the Supreme Court justices uh, case back, I think, I don't know, 50s, 60s, but maybe it was Blackwell, whatever. There was a case on pornography and one of the justices says, he goes, I don't know the definition of pornography, but I know when I see it. (laughs) It's like many things in life. Maybe we have a hard time putting a definition on it, but we know when we see it. Yeah, I agree with you. I just think most people don't go, hey, I'm going to be renting a house for 20 years. Most people, the vast majority, are pretty much probably renting for a few years or for their lease. And there is a mindset there, though. I mean, like, think of a leased car. I mean, if, you, if you're leasing a car, eh, do you, to your point, do you, you're going to wipe the seats that often? Mm-hmm. It's not really my car. But part of it is the psychology of, hey, you're not really going to have it. I'm not, it's not something I'm going to have indefinitely. It's not something I'm going to be here for a long time. Yeah, but but look at like unionized government workers who are there for 20, 30 years. They're just clocking and waiting until their pension kicks True. in. And not all. You can do this renter mentality for a very long time. Very long time. Yeah. True, true. You think the typical person who, Works you know, for Macy's for 20 years, you know, feels like they're going to change Macy's stock price. I don't think so. I think, I think they're just they, like, they're going to be nice. They're going to do their job. They're going to, you know, sell what they have to sell or whatever. I would argue that 99% of jobs want you to be just a renter. I would agree. When a hospital hires their 99th nurse, I mean, 999th nurse, then they're not go to that nurse and say, listen, we want you to shake up and blow up this hospital. No, they're like, we just want you to show up, see, be nice to the patient. When I h- hire my 200th CPA guy in my, in my accounting firm, I don't go to the 200th guy and say, listen, I need you to blow up our world here. They're like, you know, listen, just come in. Don't shake anything up. <laughs> just do your thing. So I, I'm going to give you pushback on that. I'm going to say Renters long term is actually the status quo because 
I would say most companies don't want you to do it. I think it depends on the industry. I mean, when you're using hospital, I mean, kind of going back to the staffing model, when you're doing hospital staff or staffing for hospitals or even clinics, it's all about price, man. They're they're commodities. They barely even interview them. Retail, I would agree to. That's fair. That's fair. The restaurant business and <laughs> it's, it, 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 transportation industry, it's prevalent. Fair, fair. But I would tell you in a lot of more traditional businesses that are not government backed or have this this air of security, right. retail doesn't have security. Right. There's a lot more where we're looking for oftentimes to build people. So, Well, I think, Tyler, I think you and I are saying the same thing because I think probably. you and I are in a different world and a different... I'm, I'm just saying 95% of the jobs in the United States are not in entrepreneurial organizations and True. and things. And that's the problem. I think... I used to think that way. I But I think we're, we have a skewed perspective of, because of who we've been hanging out with. Yeah. Because when you walk into Target or when you walk into anywhere, you know, you're just at a shop or or anywhere, you call any one of many businesses that you run into every day, for a lot of people, it's simply a job. And this doesn't mean that they're doing a bad, they can do a great job. I think that's another thing. They can do a fantastic job. But, you know, as I, as I said, when they're going home and the car ride home, they're not thinking, oh, these are the four emails I missed and I'll pick up. And they don't have to, and I don't think it's required. But the reason why I want to, I'm sticking on this point is because that's one of the challenges. Because when you hire people, their last 10 jobs have probably been something that didn't call out for this. And if you don't realize how unique it is to ask for this, that it's not. No, it's, oh, I'm sure they've had this experience. I would say most of the people that you know we've had really great luck with and have become owners had a track record of just going from one renter job to another. And then wow. we come and say, listen, we're, you know, we want to, and that's the part that requires mentoring. If you think this is so common that, oh, anyone I hear probably had four other jobs where they asked them to be an owner. I was, I haven't seen it. It's rare to never that someone says, oh yeah, my last job, we, we, yeah, we had to all be in. And if you don't mind, there's one other dynamic that I like to, I like to talk about this, which is Please. one of the dynamics of owners and renters is, if the majority of the people in an organization are owners and you hire a renter, there is immense pressure on that new person to you know, figure it out because it's, it, the culture is you have basically owners. The flip side is if, if you take over an organization or however you got there, you have an organization where majority of people are renting and then you put an owner in there, there's going to be tremendous amount of pressure for that owner to back off because of the culture. And so it's like if I got a job at the post office tomorrow and I walk in on day one and say, hey guys, I got some great ideas for how to revolutionize this postal service. And they'll be like, yeah, listen, just back off. Just go, 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 go. You know, we got it under control because they don't want innovation necessarily, right? I mean, they're, they're okay. And uh, not to pick on the post office, but I mean, it's um, they're okay. They're comfortable. They're okay. And yeah, maybe innovation will occur, but they're not, they're not staying up nights thinking about it. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely, certain sectors, I think, breeds that more than the others. Great point. I just have never heard the renter concept. I think that's just an awesome way to, to articulate it. Hey, I want to, I got a couple more things I wanted to cover with you. Yeah. You know, one thing in terms of uh, negotiating strategies, I know 
in reading about you a little bit, you had talked about you had some successful strategies for negotiating. Just want to talk about that a little bit. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah. So negotiating is something that requires a little bit of training. Um, remember the old adage that you always hear, you, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. Yeah. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that's another common mistake. Like they go into a meeting or whatever, like, well, sounds like we should deserve this. Sounds like this would be a fair deal. And they don't get it. And because you don't get what you think will be fair unless you are planning on negotiating. So in terms of negotiating, this you have to assess prior to any meeting or endeavor who has the leverage and to what degree. There are situations where it's equal, but for the most part, often one person has a little more leverage than the other person. So if you have all the leverage, then obviously it's going to make things a lot easier. Or if you have most of it, if they have most of it, then then you're, you're going to have to figure out a way to create your own leverage. I have a whole series of podcasts where I talk about this, where you create your own leverage. But a lot of the stuff is do your homework. I have some really big no-nos. Never ask or bring up something that's already on their website. I know it's a big pet peeve of mine when people come negotiate with us and they basically want me to read my website to them. You know, so do your homework, look up the people on LinkedIn, always try to do in person. The success rate is the one thing that the success rate on Zoom sucks compared to live. When it comes to hard negotiation, people make quicker decisions if they can touch and feel the other person metaphorically and it's really crucial. So depending on how big the deal is, where you need to be, these are just some surface tips, you know, do it in person, prepare, read the guy's LinkedIn profile or the late, you know, girl's LinkedIn profile, do your homework, read their website, do not ask any questions that you could find out some other way, because then it leaves you to talk about only high level stuff. And uh, I see this all the time when people come to me, they're basically, they've gone, maybe they looked at our website in the waiting room uh, on the phone and uh, just come in. And the people who I'm most impressed uh, and yeah, I want to work with are the ones that come in and say, oh, hey, Dr. Berkshire, oh, I, you know, you went to school here? Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Not, I mean, that's a pretty gimme softball one. But <laughs> also oh, to say, oh, I, I saw your podcast or I saw you here and I saw you used to work with this company. I used to work with that company or my brother works with that company. Just the human connection and also you know, not make them feel like you're there just to take something from them, that they're not prey, right? And that you actually want to do a win-win. And this is interesting. I think a lot of people lose it when they have leverage, but they forget to leave a win-win solution. The other thing we talk, I'm just, these are in no particular order. Good stuff, yeah. Before you go into a relationship, know what a win for them looks like. You know, some companies... They need volume. Some people need to be in a certain sector. Some people need to have certain margins. Some people need to be in a certain uh, section of the country. Some people are blowing up this product more than that product. A lot of times you can gleam that before you go in. So you're not surprised when they focus on one thing and understand what is going to be a win for them and understand what is a win for you. Understand what deal killers are for you. For example, if there's something that you can't live without, that's just the deal killer. You don't get this, you can't do the deal. Okay. 
I would put those up front and put other stuff that aren't deal killers in the back so you can horse swap them for your deal killer points, right? So a lot of times we go, oh, we're, we're going we're gonna to need this in 30 days. Oh, no, we can't do it in 30 days. It'll take us 90. Well, okay, maybe we could give it on this, but what about that? It's this horse swapping strategy of, but you have to know what your deal killer is. And then some of you need to know what their deal killer is if you can. So this is all the preparation that has to go into it. The other thing I do is before we have a meeting, I often call the person and say, hey, would you mind if we had a pre-meeting just to make sure we're all on the same page. And in the pre-meeting, it's interesting because sometimes they will tip their hand to what the meeting will be, but right? Or they'll tell, maybe it'll be a junior. Well, listen, my senior partner is going to, he's going to be really focused on, oh, that's interesting to know. And also in the pre-meeting, you can make sure all the right people are, the worst thing you can do is like have this long two-hour negotiation and the final person finally turns to goes, oh, okay, I hear what you're saying. Sounds really good. But you know what? I'm not really the guy, you know, I have to, there's one, you know, like one love. You're like, you're kidding. I just spent two hours like doing this thing and there's another person. Where was that other person? I, can't we have that person here? You know, and so in that pre-meeting, you just, I just want to double check if everything goes well. And blah, blah, blah. You know, is there anything stopping us from getting to, to, to this uh, next thing? I mean, is there anything stopping us from doing a deal? I mean, if assuming everything, you know, you got everything you want, the price is right, blah, blah, blah. If they say, well, yeah, no, then we'd have to run it up to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you know what? Let me ask you a question. Is there any way, you know, we could have Susie at this meeting too? Because I'm thinking you guys can make a better decision if both you and Susie can hear this at the same time. Yeah, that's a good one. So, anyway. That's I'm powerful. Just... That's good stuff. Hey, I got two other things and we'll wrap up. You created a course, High Converting Call Class. And at first I was like, I'm not really sure what that's all about. I got to go check it out. So I went over there and uh, it appears it's a, it's, a, it's a class on handling incoming calls, which caught me off guard a little bit because I expected it to be more something related to outbound. Can you kind of synthesize that in terms of what can we do when they're incoming calls to be more effective? Yeah. Before you ask me that, what, yeah. I, what I want to tell you is one of the things we discovered in our businesses yeah. is that if people are not trained to take incoming calls properly, and I don't mean trained on your business, of course, which has to happen, uh, like, but properly trained on how to handle phone calls, what we have found in a typical business where you're trying to either book appointment or sales, 30% of people buy with, with someone answering the phone with no training. Literally, if I just hired someone off the street, gave them a quick in-service on our products and prices or whatever, I would say they would, they'll book 30% of the calls for an appointment or a sale. And of course, that could vary, but I'm just giving you a number. And what that really means that 30% of people would probably buy from an automated system, Right. So if they called and said, if you want this product, press two, you want this you know, three, sort of like buying online, 30% of people don't need to interact with someone. So even if you don't know what you're doing, they'll still buy. And I think a lot of business owners see they hire someone, they answer the phone and they're like, wow, they're selling. No, they're not. They're selling to the people who would buy no matter what. What we have found with full training, that can be as high as 80%. 
it is so much money being left on the table and no sales technique, no high pressure, no overcoming objections, just understanding the neuro linguistics of taking a phone call and how to deal with it. You know, it's like a, I think an eight hour, 10 hour course, but it's hundreds of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. It's literally like landing a 740s and then you have to practice it for weeks and months. So it's a very complex process. Yeah. So that course, just in, in wrapping up the income, taking incoming calls, are there any little bit of tidbits? Uh, is it just training? Is it, is it a style? Um, anything you could throw out there? Yeah. I mean, just I'll give you some of the technical stuff. For example, when you answer a question, never pause, which is opposite to what you normally do in life. So if I said to you, Tyler, what time is it right now? You would give me the time and then you would pause because that, that's you, you answer my question. So just keep going. And that's what when you huh? just keep going. Well, basically. that's the thing. So if you have a process and someone asks you a question, you answer the question, but then go back to where you were. So if someone says, well, let me ask you a question. Does that come in? Are you guys open on Saturday? Then the answer to that is, no, we're not on open on Saturdays. However, we are open Monday through Friday. And given what you're telling me, sounds like you know you probably need this or that. And so you just move on. What happens is people say, well, we're not open on Saturday. Pause, 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 pause. And the problem with that is not a sales thing. It's not even a bad thing. When there is silence in a conversation, it forces the person who asked that question to, to come up with another question just to break the pause. So, and sometimes they actually create questions that weren't questions to begin with. But because you pause, they literally generated a question, which then took them down a rabbit hole, and then they don't book the appointment. It's interesting because if you look at phone sales and phone calls, and even in person, this is we did an we did this was an in-house course that I did for my staff over the last 10 years. We, my staff finally made me take it public, but uh we were training our staff like this. But if you do everything correctly, you will see a significant improvement and happiness. Because at the end of the day, when people call you and they picked up the phone, they're calling you, you didn't call them. If they don't book an appointment, it usually has to do or buy what you're selling. It has to do with something you did. 20% of people won't buy no matter what or won't book an appointment. But this thing to get from 30 to 80%, and what I what I often see is people say, oh, we need to increase our marketing budget to get more appointments, more sales, more calls, right? <laughs> more people doing 30%. Right. Like, look at you. you. You caught on right away. More people doing 30%. Yeah. And that's so why not get it up to 80%? And the irony of it is once we teach our staff how to do this, they can't even talk a different way. They go home and talk to their wives like this or husbands. They just can't, you know, the neurolinguistics of options of two and not pausing and what have you. It it actually makes it easier for the person hearing that they don't have to you know, generate questions they didn't really have and they get the information they need. There's something very satisfying about it. I've never, like in all our reviews that we get online, I've never had a, wow, I didn't really like that phone interaction. <laughs> I really was, felt like it was pushy or net. Listen, we have 10,000 reviews in the last three years on our website. It's crazy. Not one, not one discuss you know, oh, I thought what yeah. I call, in fact, ease the book an appointment. Can't believe it. So easy, so friendly. So this actually makes, because they're calling you, they have an issue 
They want to see if they reach, you know, I want to learn how to play basketball, right? Let's say I need some basketball lessons. Okay, if I can call a number and Michael Jordan or LeBron James can answer the phone and you know, say, yes, I can help you, that not, not much I have to say. Hey, okay, <laughs> when do we start? <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm in. Okay, I'm like, well, let me ask you, Michael, can I have some references? Let me see. I don't know. Uh, it sounds kind of shady, this price that you're giving me. I don't know. I'm not really... Can I think about it? Um, if you're talking to Michael Jordan, yeah, no, yeah, no. I mean, you might not be able, not be able to afford it, but but if you're talking to the Michael or Jordan of CPA firms, right, and the guy through our technique conveys that to you, what are you going to do? No, I'm going to hang up and call somewhere else. I may get the same product, but I'm not going to get you your level of expertise. So even the money issue goes away because. It's pretty clear that they're talking to the people who know this industry inside out and they've called the right. The people will pay a premium to talk to the right person, right? And so, but for example, you know, there's we have even silly rules like you can't use fillers when you talk. Okay, you can't say, or you can't repeat what they say. And, and by the way, this everything that people think is great customer service, like, oh, so you want to know if we have this service we're taught well the guy just said that why are you saying why are you i know why you're repeating you're repeating it because you're stalling for time so you can think of the next thing to say okay and these fillers but they send the cue and i normally get a lot of blowback oh that's great customer service but it's actually not great customer service you know what i mean yeah no i totally know what you mean hey doctor i want to be respectful of your time we got a little bit of a short a late start and uh coming up on the hour your website you got two websites and i'll put these in the thinktyler.com show notes e7health.com primarily serves the las vegas area and then enationaltesting.com which as it says is more national did i say that okay was that all good yeah that's perfect and then you also have a podcast can you share a little bit about your podcast before we wrap up the name of it and where people can learn more about it yeah so the podcast is bakhtari md and we're on of course youtube but we're really on spotify and all the normal podcast platforms that they can download the podcast listen to wherever they want uh, we're you know on Apple, we're on Google Podcasts, as well as if you want to watch the video, it's uh, on YouTube, Bakhtari MD. Very cool. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to go if they want to reach out to you or did I cover it? Yeah, we have a website, okay. BakhtariMD.com, which has really all our products. Uh, the High Converting Call Classes at HighConvertingCallClasses.com. There's also a link on Bakhtari MD to it. And yeah, those are all. And then if they want to, reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn personally, so they can reach out to me. Okay. And I'll put all those links in the thinktyler.show notes if anybody wants to go to those links, thinktyler.com. Hey, doctor, thanks for your time. You had so many gold nuggets and wisdom to share. Um, I feel like there should be a part two someday. <laughs> Maybe when you publish your book, which I'm sure isn't too far away. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I saw you have an ebook. Did I see on your website you have an ebook? Yeah, I have an ebook, which is no big deal, but I actually am in the works of uh, hopefully publishing a book. I've got it about three quarters done. It's going to be, uh, entrepreneurial in terms of growing and scaling your business. So I'm kind of excited about that. I haven't really mentioned it to anybody other than family. So yeah, someday yeah. hopefully I'll be an author. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. I saw you're on your website. You had the ebook. Now you have this. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate your time and uh, I look forward to talking with you in the future. All right. Thank you. All right. Be well. Take care. 
That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.